Hello everyone, I'm Devika Girish. I'm the co-deputy editor of Film Comment and I program the talk section of the New York Film Festival with my colleague Maddie Whittle. And I'm really excited to welcome you all to the closing weekend of the 60th New York Film Festival. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you know, a lot of people think the festival ends on Friday with the closing night, but we say that the festival ends when Film Comment says it ends. So, uh, so we're going to push it to a couple weeks longer. Yeah. So, you You're know, welcome. just camp out here. The festival report is sort of an annual tradition now that we've been doing for a few years where we gather some of our favorite critics for this live sort of wrap of the New York Film Festival lineup. Uh, everyone has left so we can be totally honest and say whatever, whatever we want about the film. So that's the goal today. And we have an amazing lineup of critics to do this panel with us today. So first of all, I'll introduce my co-editor, Clint, who will be co-moderating the talk with me. Um, so first of all, I'd like to introduce Phoebe Chen, who is a critic and scholar, and she's written for a number of publications, including Film Comment. <laughs> Kelly Weston, also a critic, scholar, and programmer, um, who also often writes for Film Comment, among other places. I just won't name any other places because this is Film Comment. So. And I don't think Molly Haskell needs any introduction, but this is Molly Haskell. She is a great critic that I'm sure all of you have read. All right, so without further ado, we will enter the fray and we will have some time for audience questions at the end. So stick around if you wanna you know, join the discussion at the end. Well, I was thinking we could start maybe with Molly, and Molly ask you what was the best thing you saw at this year's festival? Well, I can't, I don't think I can name the best, maybe I will by the end of the hour, but um, I, th I thought it was a great festival, and my, my, my huge first and last impression is women filmmakers are really coming into their own. Um, I know you're not supposed to find themes in a festival, but I, how I did, I found a, a really interesting overlap um, one was thematic and one was stylistic. The thematic one was St. Omer, Tar, and the Annie Erno, the Super 8 years. Uh, women um, who, through ambition or talent or both, get beyond, go beyond the place where they were born, their environment. And that struggle, and, and especially from their mothers. Mm. And how that plays out in and it's sort of never quite belonging one place or the other. And I thought that was sort of a magnificent theme, and it's been sort of in, um, in some of these directors all along. And the other was stylistic, which was a kind of withholding of information. The beginnings, and I would, I would say after Sun, Tar, um, what were the others? I have to look down, I won't do this anymore. Eternal Daughter, and Showing Up. It's like they refuse to, there's no exposition. You don't quite know where you are. You're a little bit at sea. It takes a while to kind of figure out what the tone, I'll wait till we get onto them specifically, but either tonally or narratively, you're at sea, a little bit at sea. And then gradually you sort of learn, you sort of figure out where you are a little bit. And I, I thought this was really fascinating. It was obviously a conscious choice. And I thought there was a great line in uh, showing up in the Kelly Reichardt film 
where she's getting ready for her show and she comes to, she's come twice to see her brother who we figure is bipolar, so, sort of a nut. And he's been digging this huge hole in the in the ground. And she said, "Oh, I didn't know you did earthworks." And he said, I don't do earthworks. <laughs> he said, "I'm listening to the earth. The earth is speaking to me." He said, "You have to listen to what isn't being said." And I just thought that somehow summed up a lot of what this is about. You really have to listen and watch to figure out what isn't being said. So that was just my overall thought. Yeah, I think. That gives us a lot to dig into, and I think you're really hitting the nail on the on the head with like these films that are both a lot of films that are sort of oblique, and then many of them are also about the experience of womanhood or motherhood, whether professionally, personally. And I thought one film maybe from the ones Molly you mentioned that we could start off because we haven't discussed it uh, over at Film Comment, and I know it's controversial even on this panel, is Tar. Todd feels Tar, um, <laughs> which I think, I don't know, um, it, maybe it, Kelly or, or Phoebe want to start it off with what, what the film is like and what you thought of it. Kelly, I know you're sympathetic, so you go. I am sympathetic. I'm yeah. a huge Todd Field fan. Unfortunately, there was a period of my life where I was just like obnoxiously raving about in the bedroom. <laughs> um, but yeah, to me, he's like such a sleek and really sophisticated filmmaker. I like really respond to the control of his films, like he really compels you to be patient. And even though I was, I found myself a little bit frustrated by the film, I still felt that it was a very rewarding experience because it's very dense. Um, I think Phoebe used the word like needy, like there's something about it that feels like really complex. I mean, to me, um, I don't know if we should say a little summary, but it's about, uh, you know, Kate Blanchett is playing this world famous composer. She's an EGOT, she's amazing. It's like the film starts off by, you know, in this, yeah, yeah, she's conductor, conductor. sorry. <laughs> um, and so she, you know, the film sort of starts off with this interview with Adam Gopnik of The New Yorker. I hope I don't want to offend anybody if that's wrong. But, you know, she's like essentially like putting on a performance and it feels really like a portrait of not just power, but, you know, the kind of person it takes to get there. And to me, it sort of struck me, especially like within the past few months, as like a much more interesting study on celebrity and fame than like Elvis or Blonde. Mm. And that is like, you know, hopefully not unpopular, but I just feel, you know, I walked away from the film thinking about a lot, you know, it, it feels um, rewarding in the sense that there's all of these accumulations of her personality, you know, the way that she moves people around her. And it sort of ends with her descent. I, I don't want to give any spoilers away and maybe we'll get um, more into that, but like uh, at the risk of talking too much. Like I kind of really enjoyed it because it, it makes me think a lot. And I enjoy, as Molly is saying, you know, these are films where you have to sort of piece together a lot of things. And that kind of work, um, which feels <laughs> increasingly rare, I sort of enjoy. <laughs> so I think, uh, yeah, I think it is a movie that I admire for its original content. Like, it's a story about a character that you would not normally, nobody's making movies about super famous conductors. And maybe it's because there aren't that many super famous conductors who are super powerful. And maybe I'm wrong, but 
And also it's, U-Haul lesbians. Yeah. Self-proclaimed yeah. U-Haul lesbians. It's like, this is a world in which, like, a white U-Haul lesbian can become Me Too. Like, yeah. it's already building up completely different stakes. Well, yeah, and I think what, but, and, yeah. So I think that that's the thing about this movie that I admire. What I, what bothered me about it was that it did feel contrived in, in, at the same time. Like, it seemed like it was trying, it, the storyline felt, felt a little contrived to me, and the characterization felt contrived. And not meaty, like mm. as mm. I mean, and, and you know, obviously, nobody's allowed to disagree with me. So, um, well, let me start off yeah. by disagreeing. Well, I actually don't fully disagree with you, Clint, um, because I actually thought the movie was ridiculous. I yeah. do. I did not like this movie. I like it more than you, right? I know, yeah, you like it more than me. So I'm the tar naysayer here. But, mm-hmm. you know, I saw it pretty early on before I knew anything about the movie. So I really went in completely blind. And minute to minute, I had no idea what this movie was about, where it was going. And I did get a certain thrill out of the surprises it kept throwing at me. And I, I do agree that this is a very dense movie. So every detail is saying something. And as you're watching, you're assimilating all these details and trying to like figure out what it all adds up to. But when I finally understood what the movie was about, I was like, wait, this is like cancel culture camp? I, it, it, there's just something where... And the psychology is, seems to be very oh, pat God. to me. Well, it's it's just it's just these details that While initially I found interesting started to feel very try hard. Like they are all accumulating into a portrait that's trying very hard to be complex rather than just representing complexity. Like if you think about something like Saint Omer, a very different kind of film, but in which which one Saint Omer, the Alice Diop film? Oh yeah, yeah. That's a film where, even though they're not similar in any way, and I don't mean to indicate that they are, that's a film in which, you know, complexity isn't, doesn't feel contrived. It's not like a various little contradictory and confusing details are stitched together. And this character has these little affectations. I mean, I just found Kate Blanchett's little affectation with the ticking clock and those little, you know, obsessive compulsive ticks. I found them so just on the nose. Um, and I thought that this film was her trying... dreams. She has these dreams. Yeah, well, she's things. finally coming apart. I mean, she's holding herself together. You see her background, this poor background she's come from. I mean, it's all, I think it's about, first of all, the obsessive pursuit of art and mm. what, what the toll that takes. And when you do it as a woman, as a lesbian, in a man's field, and have come from this poor background, she's just, by sheer will, has made herself into this impregnable fortress of icy auteur yeah. and so she's not you know you're a little bit repelled by it. I mean when you see Nina Hotch you just say oh a real woman you know <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know she was going to be in it as the she's lover. so great she's wonderful yeah. but she's like the, the total contrast I mean she works but she has a life too but this woman doesn't doesn't really have a life and it's I think also about I mean I, I think it is there are so many people and men that we've granted license I mean in the past because of genius and can we still do that? Can we accept their, I mean, not, not accept the, the bad behavior, but have that in part of our mind and also the admiration in another? Can mm. we live with that opposition? So I think it's, it's raising those questions. I don't think it's just a cheap shot at cancel culture. I didn't see yeah. it that way at all. I mean, some people seem to have seen it that way. I, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, but 
those questions feel pretty jaded to me. I mean, though the I think the film is presenting them as novel just because there's a woman and a queer woman at the at its center, mm. but I don't think it's actually engaging with what it means for that position to be occupied by a woman. And I think the questions it's throwing up are somewhat simplistic. And I think for me, the character, even though we get these glimpses of she came from this background and she had possibly these, um, you know, obstacles in her career as a woman, we don't actually learn how it informs her as a person. So at the end of the day, she just comes off as like a weird asshole to me and, and not, yeah. I mean... I, uh, so Tara I seems to sorry we should move on from Tara after Phoebe because otherwise we're I mean first of all room. I think the ticking clock thing is okay because I she's a conductor she's like her life is dictated by the beat of the metronome I've played in three orchestras so this is kind of haunting me as well in a similar way um, but I went in knowing that it was a movie about cancel culture mm-hmm. and as such I didn't feel like it really was about cancel culture and reading it through that lens makes it seem very rote and like kind of uninteresting. I will say the meatiness that I mentioned to Kelly, I think is more from my own dissonance of watching the film. I am someone who feels like the movie was made for them aesthetically. From that first shot of like the Taylor pattern when she's getting a suit made, I'm like, I will be looking at the pants in this movie, the trousers. Um, But also, you know, the style of her apartment, all these things are very contrived. This is someone with a very contrived aesthetic life, which informs her, you know, artistic capacity yeah. as well. Um, so I don't fault the film for being that way, but I have a lot of issues with the last third of the movie. Yeah. A lot of issues, and yeah. I don't want to. Yeah. Spoil well, that's them. the third that kind of makes it about cancel culture. I think. Do you? I think it's yeah. sort of like to me, without giving too much away, there that her descent feels like you know this reflection of everything that has gone before, right? Like she's essentially, how do I say that? She's like playing to people who don't really know who she is, but they're also in costume. I hope that's murky enough to not ruin it for people. And so there's a way that it's, you know, to me, I I dislike it too. And again, I will just have to spoil it a little bit because it's very irritating to me when white filmmakers do this, when they turn this like, you know, the encounter a white person's encounter with racialized cultures mm. as the narrative dressing. That, I hate And it. especially in this case, as a kind of downfall. I mean, yes. um, that her ostracization from, like, a Western arena. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that really did cheapen it for me. Even though it was trying to be self consciously reflexive about, you know, this is a white woman going into, with the Heart of Darkness reference, um, not Heart of Darkness, Apocalypse Now reference. Um, It still felt, I don't know if I, this is a filmmaker I trust enough with this concept yet to really do it justice or explore it in a way that doesn't just feel like I'm acknowledging, you know, this is a colonial gaze that I'm applying and that's the end of the story. Well, I think I have more to say. Put but. a bow on that one. <laughs> Got that out of the way. <laughs> um, so uh, you mentioned Saint Omer. Do we want to talk about that? Or Absolutely. We... Okay. Yeah. I Kelly, know you wanna... you've been dying to talk about this movie on the talk. So go, jump in. Okay. Uh, as a bit of a summary, I mean, you guys have talked about this before, but um, essentially, it's a philosophy professor, a Senegalese uh, philosophy professor, who goes to the trial of this young woman, a PhD student who has killed her child, her infant daughter, her mixed race infant daughter, and. Um, 
I was so struck by this film. It's it, to me. I mean, you ask the question like, what is the best? And I often have like, as you know, like very complex feelings about like what is best and like listing things. But this really was the film that to me made the festival. I'm so in love with it. Um, I find your interview um, with Alice Diop so fascinating because she talks a little bit about you know the question of universality. Um, I think she makes a bit like a slightly generous comparison between France and the United States where it concerns like, you know, black femininity. <laughs> yeah, just to, just to offer context, I interviewed Alice Diop and she said the idea of um, universality being embodied in a black woman is maybe outdated in the U.S., but in France, it's still completely unimaginable. And I did say it's not outdated in the yeah. U.S., but yeah. we cut that for space. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But she, you know, it's it's so interesting because I don't think what I'm about to say contradicts her feelings about it because she, I, I think the interview is absolutely, obviously worth a read. Um, and she's so wonderful. I also encourage people to watch her earlier films. Um, she made a lot of documentaries and I think this is her first fictional or dramatic narrative. Um, but to me, this film comes alive. Uh, it's just so inextricable from my own subject position as a black woman, like that specificity. And what it felt like to me was just like, you know, this um, just a feat of, of recognition. Like I really felt like, you know, that because essentially what this woman who is on trial is doing is kind of there's an ambiguity to it but she's kind of playing in that space between you know how French society views her and you know her as herself and knowing herself and um you know it is insurmountable <laughs> essentially like you know, countless theorists have like talked about this, you know, the way that black women are, you know, Horton Spiller says misseen. And, and then you have like Bell Hooks who talks about, you know, language is a place of struggle. And so the film also centers around language and her existence outside of that. And there is at one point in the film, someone says, you know, French, like it's a news report, but they're like, you know, French people can't really reconcile, you know, her um, sophistication and her elegant or ed uh, education with her crime. But implicitly, it's it's her blackness. And, the, you know, I can't remember what the actress's name is, but... Guzlagi Malanda. I might okay. be mispronouncing it. Right. But yeah. Uh, but she is like, you know, and it's to me not irrelevant. Like, she is strikingly beautiful. Just, like, captivating to look at. But really, apart from her beauty is, like, this real... Oh, capacity that you know and there she does something again will not spoil it but she does something at one point in the trial that really just like sort of destroys you like really offends everything <laughs> that you've been thinking about her and I just I love that like the film is so rich in that way um, I know I've used this word before but it's also really rewarding I think <laughs> because it's something that like I keep thinking about constantly you know the other thing that's really beautiful about it quickly before I stop <laughs> talking is you know she is being watched by another black woman another Senegalese woman and so it's not about you know how French society looks at her but it's about even like the misrecognition of yourself and other people who look like you, Mwah, it's great, perfect. There is even a shot I remember seeing of Rama, who was there to witness the trial, looking at her mother, Laurence's mother, looking at Laurence. So it's like this kind of triangulated or like three-point gaze yeah. that she's taking in. That's so fascinating as well, the nested looks. Um, sorry. I, I think formally it's just like such an, it's so uh, efficient 
interiority is never externalized in a really obvious way is that it, she's kind of opaque to herself as well. Like so much of the film is about how she finds her own actions inscrutable. Um, and she has a lot of lines that explicitly refer to that. And I think even the her like history as an immigrant with a immigrant mother who projects like class aspirations, cultural aspirations onto her, I think she doesn't even know you know, the genesis of her own desires and motivations. And that's what makes the, the act she committed even more ambiguous and inscrutable to herself because it's like part of her whole narrative. And not to compare, but, you know, this film is so, is meaty. You know, I think I've oh, said of course. that. Oh, so much more than the other. And I think we can, it's endlessly generative of ideas and, right. you know, yeah. conversation, I think. But it's a movie that, it, uh, that I thought for some reason goes hand in hand with, Saint Omer for me was uh, the Eternal Daughter, the Johanna, the Joanna Hogg film. Maybe again because of that austerity of form, that kind of simplicity of the narratives. The uh, it's a mother-daughter narrative. Another ma- mother-daughter narrative. Um, I don't know. Did you guys did what did you guys think about that one? I'm gonna have Phoebe start. That's <laughs> because she watched it and she sent me a suspect text. Okay, I I have since realized that it was my own desire for it to be a film that it wasn't, which is on me. Um, There were a lot of things I did like about it instinctively. Like, I love the gothic setting, the play on the ghost story. Tell us a little bit what it's about as well. Okay, I mean, what what is it about? It is the third... A, a woman and her mother go to a an inn. Both played by Tilda Swinton. Both played by Tilda Swinton. A woman and her mother, both Tilda, two Tilda Swintons, go to an inn in rural somewhere in Scotland? No, maybe. Perhaps. Very yeah. British place. UK. Spooky, spooky <laughs> okay. British United place. T- United Kingdom. I do think Kingdom. it's in yes. Scotland. They seem though, to right? be the only guests at this inn. Um, everything seems extremely haunted. There's a mist that pervades pretty much every single frame. Um, and then... I, that's it. What else is there? She's there to try and write a story about her mother and her relationship. But that's the bare bones yeah. of whatever plot there is. And the, I think the mother spent some of her childhood in that ha- oh, yes. ha- mansion before it was turned into a hotel, so it really does feel haunted by it's the It's ancestral past. as well. Doesn't she say it's like it was like owned by their family or something? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, to me, I kind of loved it because I am I mean if anything is born out probably in this talk is that I am just bound by my own patterns and so this is very much up my alley um I will say uh there's something about it that feels so literary and I specialized in my PhD on female gothic literature and something that um really struck me about like you know this clearly haunted space that they exist in is that often in like female gothic narrative so like Jane Eyre Wuthering Heights, so on, so on. There is the sense that the daughter is the daughter must be a double of the mother, mm. and she will encounter different sort of facets of, of her. Um, the mother is often like you know ghostly and not really there, somehow irretrievable. But also the house begins to stand in for the mother, and so she sort of you know has to explore this place and uh, get reacquainted with. I mean, there's all sorts of like very strange symbolism that's also very gender as well um but I kind of love it because it is like you know and actually I think like the three films we talked about so far including Tar uh are stories about hauntings in a way different like intrusions into your life um and uh I think 
to me, one of the things that I, I also encountered several people who were just like, you know, Tilda Swinton is kind of washed. Like the 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 things that I was After hearing was this? yeah. Well, people had seen it and they were just like, oh, like I'm just kind of tired of Tilda Swinton. I don't, I cannot relate. I think that she's really good in this. Like she's so washable. There's something also about you know her way of like that that cadence or like that specific way of communicating with people that feels like very British where it's just like they're not actually you know they're sort of they're speaking to each other and these like colds and it's all like overly polite it's and all very... what I really love about her performances in this film as mother and daughter is it she manages to pull off these very specific characters without resorting to affectations you know yes. a lot of actors would use certain kinds of um you know little idiosyncrasies of gesture or performance i think sometimes to to distinguish double roles or or to portray like characters who seem off a particular milieu I totally forget that she's playing two it's characters. not a gimmick at all no yeah and talk about the cells of the mother being in the, in the cells of the daughter right but also one of my favorite things in joanna hogg's movies is the relate is tilda swinton as the mother and her as a daughter and you have more of that here which is the daughter is the mother is kind of landed gentry and she's placid and she knows her place in the world and she has this natural elegance and the daughter is an artist but she's insecure she's anxious she's overdoing it all the time she's over i mean she's taking care of her mother her mother's not asking her to do that you know she's like forcing her mother to eat on her birthday, <laughs> her birthday. and when her mother's like i'm not hungry she bursts into tears <laughs> and who among us has not <laughs> and i mean her mother also might not even be there so but that's an interesting flip, know. right? That feels so relatable to me. I am an only child. But, you know, when at a certain point, I think this happens with all children and their parents, where you become this, like, overbearing, like, helicopter figure, and they're just like, please give me <laughs> space. And that felt like so, I mean, again, no spoilers, but like, quite heartbreaking at a certain moment. That moment where she's, like, crying over the food, but also just, you know, there's several small minor moments that they have together of, like, you know, the things that they won't say to each other or, um, even their conspiratorialness like at one point another cousin is coming and they're just like oh please get rid of him and it's right. just like those really intimate um quotidian moments feel like so heartbreaking it's also just like very funny yeah and and like occasionally scary like actually scary and sometimes annoying i mean that woman at the desk if only somebody would just get, go after her i mean she, she's, she has them so intimidated i don't know I'm obsessed with that woman. She was like one of my favorite parts yeah, about that. I love her. Yeah. And you don't, that's so fun too. Like you get like little glimpses into her life. Like yeah. she has this car that waits for her constantly. And we're presuming it's a guy in the car because Blasting he's like very rude for music, her. Right? Like, yes. Every, yeah. Well, and I mean, I, I love the beginning where she says, I don't, you can't have your room because it's taken every key, every room has a key in it. Nobody's there. Yes. <laughs> every single room is vacant, but she yeah. says hers isn't. You know? And she feels like a perfect, actually, horror movie character yeah, in that. Right you know who's just lying to your face yeah. and is rude <laughs> and is kind of hiding some secrets but also seems so bored and blasé that you don't know if if the kitchen is closed <laughs> <laughs> she's also the server yeah, and she's really a... rude when she's serving food um yeah it's funny it has a lot of humor oh i was just gonna say the the thing that still i i enjoyed a lot the first time i watched it even though i was, I, thought, I wanted it to lean more into its ghost story elements, but 
the more I thought about it, that I was like, what, how much more could it lean into? It uses the ghost story form to like be about memory and haunting. But one thing I really liked was that there's a moment when it transpires that her mother experienced something very traumatic at this place. And she, uh, what's her character? Julie doesn't know. And then it Julie, kind of, like Julie's the, the main character. Yeah. Yeah, it's about Julie. Um, and her mother tells her this very traumatic thing that happened during her childhood. And they have this conversation about regret um and that ties in so perfectly with her the previous two souvenir films because it was a question it was a thing about regret and agency um they have they talk about i think can you regret something that happened that you had zero control over and that idea of i don't know a right to a feeling or a right to a story that kind of threads all the three films i felt like that moment was really powerful in capturing that and i think this film is ultimately like kind of going off of what you're saying is also you know, about the impossibility of knowing your mother, about the impossibility of knowing someone you love dearly. You, And it is kind of the fantasy of many daughters to know their mothers completely. And you always hit a point in your life when you know, I'm never going to know this person who had a life before me, who is a different person and not just some kind of extension or like I'm not just some outgrowth of hers. We are different people. And I Is there also a little guilt in that she's using her mother, she's writing about her? I mean, I think the over, she's overcompensating for that in a way. Some of her, you know, solicitousness comes out of that, the guilt. Um, yeah, I, I, I listened to just a briefly to the beginning of the conversation after the film, and I didn't realize this, but Joanna Hogg and Tilda Swinton grew up together, and they talked about their mothers all the time. And so this became their chance to both of them sort of to contribute this, and they realized that so much of what they remember is fantasy. So I think that's the ghostly quality of it. You sort of suggested that, yeah. I think this is like, I mean, because I had almost completely forgotten about the recording of it, but I also love that too. It sort of contributes to, I think, like the emotion of the film. It's just like, you know, this person is like coming to the end of their life and how do I preserve them? Which is very much like after sun and I'm just going to introduce it so I can be in control of my emotion. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, after sun um, is a film by Charlotte Wells. It's her first feature length, right? It is her first feature, yeah. Okay. She made she's made three shorts before. Okay. Yeah. Have people here seen After Sun? Um, yeah. Oh, yep. okay. Um, so After Sun is a it stars Paul Mescal, um, hottie of the year, and um, uh, this young actress is her character's name is Sophie, but I can't remember what the actress's name is. Uh, I believe it's Frank. Key, maybe? Right. And they're both yeah. incredible, but yeah. it's essentially about a, a, an 11 year old who goes on a vacation with her father in Turkey, and they're constantly sort of, he's a young dad, and um, they're constantly sort of, you know, recording each other. And um, it's a, it, it starts off as this also really deeply intimate and very sweet film that is just completely unexpectedly and devastatingly emotional by the end um, because you know he's kind of prone to certain mood shifts and you don't really know why that is but you get the sense that he's you know suffering from depression and um, the, there's also sort of intercut with um, the their vacation is her as an older woman like when she's in her 30s and um, you can see her sort of like pouring over this old, you know, record of this vacation. And, and a new um, parent, too. I think she has a yes, new yeah, child. She's a, yeah, she's a little baby. Um, and so it's really, it, it, it's a, <laughs> again, I am trying to be very careful about what I say here because it's one of these those films that is like, 
so worth um, just going in, like not knowing a lot about it because it will sneak up on you. People use this language a lot about it, but it's very much true. Um, but it, it just sort of becomes this real, um, you know, like, like, like what we're saying, right? Like this ode to like the impossibility of knowing your parent. Yeah. And yeah, I thought there was some really troubling thing, especially the beginning. I thought the begin. I, I could not get over how uneasy it made me feel. You've got this father and his eleven-year-old. I mean, what father goes on a two-week vacation with his eleven-year-old daughter to, to begin with? But they get to the hotel. <laughs> They, 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 he calls downstairs, you said you would have two beds and there's only one bed. So you set up for some sort of sexual mm. impropriety. And, and it, I, well, I think, I just think you can't, maybe it's my dirty mind, but I thought it was very, <laughs> I thought there was, that you have that. And, and also the fact that why they, why is a father uh, two weeks with his 11 year old daughter and at one point they're playing pool and the guys think their father, I think their brother and sister. Yeah. So then you realize that he's trying, he's sort of more of a child than she is yeah. in some ways. And so that's the thing. And the other thing, though, is, is you're in this beautiful, you know, resort with the sea and the sun, and you never can relax mm -hmm. because you don't quite know what's coming. And you know that, I mean, there are these scenes that are sort of dark and chaotic that intrude, and you're not quite sure what that's something to do with the father. Yeah. So, I mean, it's very mysterious about him. I think really it's about his inability to... Grow old, grow up, grow old. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I really, you know, as you were saying, Kelly, this is a film that if you describe it or summarize it, it can feel quite simple, mm. and really is a film that comes alive in the execution and the performance, the way it's edited, mm. the way it captures a certain mood, this uneasiness, and it does sneak up on you. I mean, I watched it having no idea what it was about, you know, and. Um, really not expecting to love it. And by the end, I was just a puddle, which I know is almost everyone's reaction. And I just think it's it's a beautiful portrait of like living with mental illness and learning and trying to give love to someone else when you're unable to give it to yourself, which is what Paul Mescal's character to me felt like finding, try to find reserves of love for someone dear in your life. He's clearly not ready for fatherhood. Mm -hmm. While he is struggling to, you know, be comfortable in his own skin. And I think that kind of portrayal of depression that is so finely tuned and is not, is, is still like slippery, you know? It's still like elusive, I, I think is quite impressive. I, I sobbed during this at the, towards the end, like most people did, but the film's real. It, it, I've been trying to articulate in what way it made me cry because it's not a kind of precisely orchestrated, narratively driven kind of emotion. You're not like pulled along by the plot, invested in characters, and then, you know, there's a melodramatic moment and you weep for whoever. It, the way I, and I started crying was like kind of inexplicable. And I think that's to do with like how elusive its form is. That's part of the editing for sure. And there's also, I think the moment for me was, there's a, this isn't really a spoiler. There's like a scene that reveals someone we've been looking at is an older version of someone else. It's kind of a sudden, the sudden feeling of time come crashing down. And that was the moment that, I don't know, just, yeah, pushed me to the brink. And I think that pervasive sense of dread that you're kind of describing that is that you feel throughout the movie even in these moments of joy, joy. Yeah. Uh, I think that comes I think 
I, you know, I think that it's obviously deliberate, but I think that's because it's a, you, you realize at a certain point that this is a adult looking back on this, on this child's experience. If it were the child's perspective, you wouldn't have that dread. Mm. The child mm. would sort of be yeah. naively. And that's yeah. like, and you know, it's a difficult thing to pull off. It's very subtle. It's a very subtle move. And it's kind of, I think, I don't know how it's done here, really. I think that, it, yeah. Well, Lily indicated the, uh, uh, the macho side of the desperate macho side of him. He's got this sort of encyclopedia-sized book on Tai Chi. Right. He's got this wound that he probably got in the gym or something. We don't, mm. we don't know how he got it. But he's a wor workout. He's obviously a workout fiend. Right. So there's something about that that bespeaks desperation, I think. Yeah. And there's a distance as well between them that is like often spatial due to the editing, but also like literally like within the room, like you will see him through a glass door and there's just like a kind of longing that it really affects. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like this sense of somebody who is just kind of elusive to her. And, you know, it's, there's also that like really incredible scene, like, well, let's be very careful right now, but they are talking to each other in the, um, in the hotel room, but you can sort of see their reflections through the TV and he's telling her this story about his childhood. And I think like, that's where I was like, I lost it <laughs> because he, you can tell like there's things that he can't say to her because she's too young or it's too painful. And I think you also begin to feel his pain within Paul Mescal's performance. Like you can feel that looming sense of some, like something cloudy about him, even when he's like completely happy and effusive right. and so. Um, yeah, it, this is just, like, incredible. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Ovid. IndieWire recently called Ovid an increasingly essential streaming service that's perfect for cinephiles determined to create their own canon. Ovid's collection is hand-curated by human beings, never an algorithm, with films and series you won't find anywhere else. This month, Ovid offers exclusive access to films like the indie classic In the Soup, starring Steve Buscemi and Seymour Cassell, Costa Gavras's seldom-seen Eden is West, and the controversial Sundance hit Wild. With documentaries from around the world and films from directors like Chantel Ackerman, Charles Burnett, and Ira Sachs, Ovid invites you to look at life through a different lens. Sign up today at ovid.tv and get a free seven-day trial. Should we move out of the uh, parent-child I wanted trap. to. I want to bring up a film that I really <laughs> want to talk about with this panel, uh, changing gears a little bit, and that's Master Gardener, Paul Schrader. Anybody? I have not seen it. You didn't see. Oh my so god! Just you and me. <laughs> did you see it? Uh, I did see it, and right. I know you did. Well, you guys can just take five. <laughs> Uh, maybe we can keep it really brief. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't want to know what Clint has to say about it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's not, I don't have any. I don't have very much. No, I. I think it. it's a very weird film, and maybe we'll talk about it uh, on the podcast mm -hmm. in the coming months. But his films are weird. But, but this <laughs> one is so strange. I only saw it There's yesterday. There's a moment in this movie where I was like, "This guy is. Uh, this is weird." It's is <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, so I I'll just. I'll just say give, briefly, I don't want to give away. Uh, but we, how can I talk about why, why it's weird without giving away the... I think you can give away the, that, uh, the organ, the, you know, the, the, the secret, his secret. Right, his secret. But okay. I think that uh, there's a, the relation, the central relationship to me is just like so, so bizarre and like it's, it's treated as if it's totally normal. No, it's, it's really... And, and I, I just... Okay, so I will tell people if, have, has some of you seen it? 
Oh, some of you have, so you know what we're talking about. But just as maybe a little teaser, and we'll talk about this movie more in the coming months. But uh, you know, Joel Edgerton plays a gardener, a horticulturist, and he manages the gardens of this rich, strange sort of seemingly, um, con- you know, kind of controlling and toxic woman played by Sigourney Weaver, and I think she's fantastic. And you can tell they have a weird relationship sexual relationship that I think he has been maybe coerced into in some way. I mean, he is under her care. You know, she has given him this job and this life. She taught him how to be a gardener. And she has this strange relationship with him. He's very particular. He's very good at his job. Like other, you know, protect, Paul Schrader protagonists. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's he's always writing in his diary. And then... And it, uh, the film actually opens with a <laughs> shot of him sitting at a, t- at a table from behind and in a totally empty room writing in his diary and it's just like a continuation of if you've seen the card counter you know that's sort of a visual trope and so this character just kind of transforms into this other character this other guy oh i didn't pick up on that that's a good that's a good observation at the the screening (laughs) oh really okay um but yeah, and so he's really finicky, and then Sigourney Weaver's character has this grand niece that she hasn't talked to in years, who um, whose mother just died, uh, and so she takes her also under her care. She's like fallen into a bad crowd, it seems, and dropped out of school, and and kind of is in with like, you know, drug, drug users. But it's also again like this is also. I, I, it's handled in a way that is like totally makes no sense to me. Like well, this is not dr- what drug dealer like <laughs> like no this is not a real world. Well, let me portraying. finish the plot and then I I think we have to like list some of the ridiculous moments. Um, but anyway, this this girl is half black and there's you know she's introduced as she's of mixed blood and she had a very hard time, and then so she comes and she becomes Joel Edgerton's character's apprentice and his name is Narvel. Narvel Roth and she's like what kind of name is that anyway she so she becomes his apprentice and then they start and then okay this is the thing and then one day he's like taking off his clothes and you realize his secret that he used to be like a white power neo-nazi like a skinhead and he has he's covered in like swastikas yeah swastikas and white power tattoos and apparently he like um you know was He's arrested? in the witness protection program. Yeah, he's because he ratted out the rest of his white powered gang and has been trying to redeem himself since then. So then he develops a relationship with this girl, and I'll leave it at that. But you know, and then she- I'm never gonna see this film. I know I shouldn't say that. <laughs> it is a. It is like a. It is. It is a ridiculous, like you know, like operatic ridiculousness. Yeah. Well, but. But, you know, like in Schrader's style, just like underplayed to the point of like catatonia. Like the characters are just kind of don't make facial expressions and their line readings are all really flat, which is something that is, has always bothered me about his kind of post-American uh, yeah. gigolo films. But I, you, know, you should see it. <laughs> I, I think that there is something audacious about the premise that could be if the plot had not unfolded the way it did I think there is something here about this guy trying to redeem himself if it's possible for someone and you know he has like he he refuses to remove his tattoos I guess because he feels he needs to carry the symbol of who he was but 
that to me is pretty questionable and it, it's not really these things aren't explored what does it mean then like it, the movie explores what it means psychologically for him to have gone through this experience but it doesn't explore what it means socially for yeah. a person like this to exist among other people and carry these it's secrets. just another sort of representation of sin right it's just right. a representation of like a burden that this man has to carry which is like a very it's problematic i mean yeah. it's like but being like a member of the KKK is not just like a personal sin it has like real social consequences this is, you know this is the same plot as the card counter like the same character right. like it's uh, anyway we don't have to keep I do have to say this. one ridiculous about... thing he meets with his like case agent in the witness protection program at a cafe and he's like I want a favor there's this guy a drug dealer that I want some information on and the case agent pulls out his laptop like yeah let me look up on my database in this cafe on his laptop like is I mean, that how the FBI works like, and then like the drug the, like, the whole the town the the bad part of town where they live I don't know is this I don't know just where are, where is this taking place it's like <laughs> Cleveland or something I'm and not this, sure like, this white drug dealer who who's like a hippie kind yeah, of yeah he's a hippie and but he, he's like, like a badass hippie and he gets back at Joel when Joel Edgerton's character comes to threaten him he's like yo proud boy and I'm like I think we're supposed to cheer here right <laughs> like yes this proud boy should be getting bullied like and then he gets his comeuppance at like a drug party that also is just looks like a high school like I'm rager. sorry this sounds like a stream of consciousness thing that's between you and Jack. like if right, I didn't, we'll if move on I think we should move on because like let's, <laughs> let's talk about what <laughs> It is, and I think, what it, okay, so there are, like, and I will say, like, there are moments of, like, poetry where you, where it kind of comes together into, like, something briefly, but I think that the, the yeah, it's, I, I don't know. We, yeah, we can stop here. We can stop. <laughs> but you can see why I wanted to. Each detail is in more increasingly outlandish than the last. Don't make me want to watch it. Like, and I don't want like, to. Like, to me, the most outlandish thing we haven't even, like, discussed, which is, again, this central relationship, which just makes... Absolutely. Yeah. No Let's save that for when, when more people have seen it. Um, Bring Paul Schrader on the podcast. And, <laughs> and interrogate him. Okay. Recreate um, a court. Let's talk about a movie that we have seen. Uh, well, I don't know. Let's. I'm all you had a whole yeah. list. Well, I have one fine morning decision to leave. Let's talk about one fine morning. Yeah. yeah. Is that okay? Did you guys see that? All right. Let's move on then. Decision to leave. <laughs> decision to leave. I know we can talk about Yeah. Because Phoebe just wrote about decision to leave. Yes, I did. Um, I does someone else want to introduce it, and then like Molly, did you like it? I loved it. Well, um, yeah, but I, oh, microphone. That, that, that's Molly, Mike. Okay, you have ten <laughs> seconds to recap the entire movie. Okay. Mike, though. Vertigo Molly. meets uh, Sherlock Jr. meets. <laughs> How's that? Molly. Great. <laughs> a detective story. A, a love story. Um, ellipses, you never know quite where you are, brilliantly done, and you don't know what, oh, sorry, sorry, um, you're not quite sure what genre it is, it's sometimes self-mocking, other times passionate, and, uh, and you described it very well when you introduced it, about how you veer from one, one mood and one feeling to the other, you just, you want to see it again, the minute you've seen it, you mm -hmm. sort of want to see it again, um, it's a detective park, what was it? I don't remember the actor's name, but he's wonderful. Park Hae-il. He's so good. And the Chinese so actress who plays the, the woman who's the Chang suspect. Wei. So yeah. it's a little bit film noir. It's a little bit Laura, where the detective is compromised by his passion for the suspect. Anyway, that's it. Yeah. No, go ahead. 
I mean, I don't even know where to begin with this, but it's very unlike a lot of the other Park Chan-wook films. In fact, yeah. I, I'm someone who's very familiar with, with his work and it came in with a lot of expectations and the film clearly subvert, was trying to subvert all of them. And I didn't get the same feelings that I usually get from his films that I looked for, but this is the film that made me realize he's a genius and knows exactly what he's doing and his execution of every feeling, his you know um, thwarting of every feeling with his editing, especially in this film is brilliant. What are the um, feelings you got from the other films that you didn't get here? I'd be interested to hear that. Just like being moved in a way that is completely Emotional. tethered to the story, like emotions, narratively propulsive yeah. emotions, um, because the stakes are the protagonists that we've gotten to know over the course of the film, and the film's actively drawing on like melodrama and like revenge like re revenge thrillers and those kinds of forms. But Decision to Leave is very explicitly kind of refusing to let some of these usual emotions swell in that way. Um, and I think that's where it becomes really interesting because it's kind of, he's kind of asking like, why should I give you this particular satisfaction? And that's part of the film's theme as well, because mm. I don't want to give it away, but you know, it's not the happiest love story. It's about unfulfillment in, yeah. in, in a lot of ways. Unconsummated. Yeah. Relationship in many Absolutely. Ways. It's about insomnia too. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Which is its own kind of unconsummation. Yeah, you know, it's exactly. it's like its own kind of like unfulfilled desire. I I was very taken with this film. Firstly, just on the level of form. I mean, it is masterfully made. The the intricacy, scene to scene, the intricacy of the editing, the cinematography, the performances, you really I don't know, I feel like at least in America, like People don't make these kinds of movies anymore where you, you sense this idea of a master of the form and not just one particular aspect of the form, but the music, the editing, the, the style, the colors, the dialogue, everything is so dense and you can see that a lot of thought has gone into it and it gives this sense of like total cinema. But then I think, Phoebe, maybe what you're gesturing at you know, in his previous movies, I've always felt like a very detectable layer of irony or wryness, even when they are like grand romances, melodramas, like violent thrillers. And this movie has a lot of ironic humor as well, but it is ultimately so sincere in its emotional heft. It's just such a purely sincere, you know, story of love that almost gets you by surprise because there's so many other fun detective and thriller and crime story gadgets mechanics. and gizmos constantly yeah appearing. and you're never sure what, when she's being whether or not she's being sincere ever you I've n never yeah. i think the most beautiful love line i've ever heard is when she said i wish i could exchange my sleep for your sleeplessness like batteries i mean i think that's so beautiful she's going to give him her sleep and take his sleeplessness i mean what what greater gift can a lover give another yeah, it's another movie about like the essential, uh, you know, unknowability of of other human beings, yeah. right? Because he's so suspicious of her throughout the entire film. And he's never yeah. quite sure if she's if she's being sincere. Mm -hmm. yeah, although I think, like you know, we know at the end. But yeah, that's good. there's a language barrier there too, as well, right, because right, she's really... Chinese. She's right. a Chinese immigrant, and she's speaking in Korean. And they're trying to, in so many like really cute ways, trying to bridge that. <laughs> gap between them um, I also agree I really love this film and I love Park 
films a lot, Park Chan Wook's films a lot. Um, yeah, I don't want to, like, why am I saying it? like I know him personally? But I like, I, I like, literally, like, you know, I found this to be, um, in terms of like, the editing of the form, right? Like, there's something slightly disorienting about it because you're sort of replicating his sleeplessness and his, like, you know, there's something a bit erratic about it and almost desperate as well. I don't know if that's something like I'm projecting because it's like so clear in their relationship, but. It is like, you know, he is such a real, like, controlled filmmaker um, and really, you know, very, like, he's always, like, quite meticulous, but this still feels like just a whole other level for him. Like, I, I feel like I'm still so incoherent on this film because I've been thinking about it constantly and I've only seen it once and I really want to watch it again but there's so much there that I feel like uh, I feel like even there's some things that I even missed by the end of this film that yeah. yeah I mean it's com been compared to Vertigo and I think it like you know merits the comparison like it's as yeah. it's it's also have, it's also having fun with all the tropes of detective fiction yeah. I mean he has a Martin Beck book there and it's all the forensic pathologist lingo all of that he's just enjoying and the interrogation room and sending out for food I mean he's just having a great time with all wow. of that I mean it's one of those things that parodies while it's also being that while it's also right. and it's in the the way in which it is Hitchcockian and, and you know recalls all those movies for me is it's really ultimately about not knowing the difference between wanting to know someone and wanting someone. Like mm. that the detective's obsession of wanting to figure out an answer, like figure out if someone's guilty. And in this case, he's like, am I just being a good detective or am I in love with this woman? And I think that's... But also, she loves being, she wants to be a suspect because he'll stand out of her outside of her house and watch her. And he'll take, she wants him to watch over her. So I think the film plays on that, that the idea of the suspect as just someone who has something worth knowing or something mm -hmm. you want to know. And that's true in like a criminal case and in love. Mm -hmm. The other has something you want to know. Therefore, there's a suspect. It's also hilarious. Like, he, his films are always hilarious, but, like, this is a comedy. I mean, I know it's oh, not yeah. really. It's actually, like, a tragedy. But it is also, like, it's hilarious. Bold. Yeah, it's just start to finish. It just... opens with, like, a really funny joke. Yeah. I don't remember what the joke is. <laughs> I just remember laughing. He's always putting the drops in his eyes. I mean, sort of a right, right. very a sort of obvious metaphor, but it's also very funny yeah. and very funny. Also, the most central use of voice recordings in like a film in a long time, which has kind of been a motif because there's voice recordings in Saint Omer, there's voice recordings That's in Eternal true. Daughter, but in um, Decision to Leave, they have like a central narrative. Function. And the end of, uh, of voice recording iPhones or you know, right. uh, yeah, this is like the best. Use. So many films oh, struggle yeah. to use to integrate technology, and they do it in such like just silly, ridiculous ways, mm -hmm. as if these people themselves don't use technology, and he's able to integrate it in a way that's really smart and clever. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, there's more movies we can talk about, but I wanted to open it up to the audience and see if people had movies they'd like us to talk about or any just anything else they'd like us to dig into uh, there, and then, yeah. Yeah, let's go to Eddie and then over here. Um, I want to go to a different direction to talk about the non-main slate films. What were your most favorite and least favorite non-main slate films? Non-main slate? I mean, I know we, did you like the Super 8 years? I did. I yeah, did. and that's in the spotlight. Um, the Annie Arnaud is, is fact, well, of course, she's just won the Nobel Prize and, and we, you probably read her and Happening was an adaptation of a book she wrote about getting an abortion in the 60s. So. She's very, um, she's very clued into politics and sociology, but she's, it's also about a woman who's 
been uprooted from her, her working class family. I mean, she says at one point, that, well, it's, what it is, is uh, in 1972, she and her husband, Philippe Arnaud, bought a Super 8 camera and started taking home movies of their children. So the whole film is the, is the movies that they took, they, they took from 1972 to whenever they stopped with her commentary over it. And so she analyzes from the beginning, he's the one with the camera, so he's the man, so he does it. And she says that the two most important points in her life, the first was her mother, well, that was her point of departure, and her husband was the point of arrival. But he's obviously, you see his parents, and they're very bourgeois, and he's very educated. So she's made this leap, and I think all of her writing is really about being in, in, in between these two. And even even her travel, she goes to, they go to Chile. She makes a funny remark, but they're going to, they want to see the revolution. It's Allende is in power. She said, we're going to Chile for a uh, Nouvelle Literature, some magazine. And she said, we wouldn't go to some vacation spot and sit in the sun like idiots. And then about, you know, a year later, they're sitting in the sun in Albania as tourists because they've been segregated from the Albanians, you know. And she's, so she's very observant very keen on politics, so she weaves the politics into these voyages, and it's very personal, um, and yet she doesn't tell everything either. I mean, with these, she and Philippe split up, and you're dying to know more about that, and you never find out. So she she seems confessional, but she's telling you what she wants to tell you. It is co-directed by her and Philippe. Right, well, that's so right, maybe he took, he took the film. So yeah. yeah. No, I I second that. I love that film, and I'm... Um, I'm so glad that most hopefully that people will have a renewed interest in her work because of the novel. Because of the prize, yeah. But the film is like separate from is so her writing, which she her voiceover is very beautiful in the film, and maybe one of it's like driving engine. But it's also amazing to see her words in relation with the moving image, and it's a different experience than reading her books. You know, Absolutely. I, there's yeah. something very. Um, magical about seeing that interplay between the text and the image and her thinking about how the arrival of the camera changed her relationship to language, to memory, what it meant for her from the point of view of class and gender. Um, yeah, so that's a non-main slate And also that the children have a, their own claim to, to being in it and and the idea that you're, you're having these memories and then you're going to look back on it at, at a time when they couldn't have imagined ever getting to that time. So the time is very much a part of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to oh, shout just, out quickly a uh, revivals feature, uh, A Confucian Confusion by Edward Yang, which I really thought was yeah. uh, a remarkable film that should be sought out. And um, a couple, anything from Currents, I think, that we could... Well, I have a couple Currents picks, but... Uh, Kelly, I think was Dry Long so a film that you... It's a film that I've seen before and I didn't get a chance to see it at this festival, which is very chaotic. Um, but I do recommend people um, finding a way to watch that. Colleen Smith also did it. Is, is her interview like on the podcast? Yeah. Okay. Um, she was this year's um, Amos Vogel lecture honoree. So she delivered this year's Amos Vogel lecture, which was followed by a conversation with Jacqueline Stewart that's on the podcast. But uh, I think Dry Long so... It's, it's a wonderful yeah. film that's been newly restored. Uh, so that's another pick. Phoebe, did you have a... I haven't seen one. anything. Okay. Well, I'll just... Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to mention two current picks from me. And one of them is Rewind and Play by Alan Gomi, which is about just kind of this amazing re-edit of an in, a French interview with Thelonious Monk, an amazing interrogation of racism, the racism with which... 
this interviewer who is an admirer of Monk, it, it, how racism seeps into that interaction, but it's done, it's all conveyed through montage, through editing, so it's excellent. And I'll also shout out Human Flowers of Flesh by Helena Whitman, um, which, you know, is, is a gorgeous film if you're a fan of her first feature, Drift. This is completely different, but also similar in many ways in a really beautiful um, formalist film about memory and narrative and water and the ocean. So those are our main slate, non-main slate picks. Um, before I say something, I wanted to ask because my English is not so good. Um, which was the name of the film um, you, dis you discussed second? Uh, I, I didn't hear because oh. you, you saw this it was a so amazing film here in the festival. Oh, Saint-Omer? Yeah, uh, Omer. Saint Omer. Yes. Ah, okay. And and the last film you talk about? Just now? Uh, not not now. In, in when when before the questions. Uh, what were we talking? Decision to leave. Decision to leave. This decision to leave. Now I I want to say because um, that, um, you you talk about her and I have also a problem with this film because they I see only um, characters the characters in the same way act the, the whole time. It's a little bit boring. I uh, understand. Mm -hmm. Okay, and class story and so but um, uh, when when I compared with uh, for instance uh, Armageddon uh, this was um, film Armageddon Time by James Gray or uh, Armageddon Life uh, Armageddon yeah yeah Armageddon Time Armageddon Time yeah. Armageddon Time yes yeah. because um, there are, um, there are characters in, in, in different situations they act in another in another way you understand? Uh, um, the, the father of, uh, of her, for instance, is not uh, only ah, I'm the devil <laughs> to my child. Or so right. it's, uh, it's uh, and, and it's uh, a very sad uh, theme. Yeah, it's uh, it tells uh, much about our world. Um, also, when we are so fanatic with our morality. Mm -hmm. Uh, also, just now it's happened in Europe, no, you know, um, morality, morality, no, and uh, it's not the best when, uh, when we only, uh, and um, yeah, this is... This, this, uh, did anybody uh, see, did you see Armageddon? Did you also saw, uh, maybe in the other section, slaughterhouses of uh, um, modernity? Uh, I haven't seen that yet, but I love Heinz Emigold's work. Yeah, and I would recommend that everybody seek out his work. Uh, you know, he had two films, The Lobby and The Last City at last yeah, year's festival that, that were great. But I, I haven't gotten to Slaughterhouses of Modernity yet, but I look forward to it. But yeah, did anyone see Armageddon Time? I tried and could not do it. No, unfortunately. <laughs> In the sense that you couldn't make it, or you yeah, I couldn't yeah. make it to the press screening, and then I tried to get um, public tickets, and that didn't happen. I so. thought you said that I you tried to sit through it and you gave oh, up. No, no, no. <laughs> I love James Gray actually. Like I really want to see it. So, yes, just one question: um, which was uh, the most surprising film that you saw? I mean, that you were kind of. That your mind was blown away because my mind was blown away by E.O., by Skolimovsky. You know, I was waiting for the movie because he won like the jury prize in Cannes. Yeah. And really, really is something. It's a, for me, it's a small jewel and I recommend yeah. it. I don't know if you saw it. Yeah, we, we, we actually uh, just 
published and we did a podcast interview with Skolomowski that uh, went up yesterday and it's, you know, a, a really interesting conversation. He's a really interesting filmmaker and person. And that film is, uh, is uh, yeah, not unlike anything else in this lineup. And um, I haven't seen it, but I really, really want to. It's yeah. like, I'll see it the second it comes out. Yeah, I, I Clint and I really did... Um, find it very surprising as did everyone at Cannes when it premiered I mean no one knew what to expect from Yerji Skolomowski in 2022 he hasn't made a feature in seven years and then it's like a kind of Brisson tribute because it's about this but with like lasers and robots and <laughs> yeah. like drone shots and just like the most like go for broke filmmaking just like every I just throwing ideas on the screen. I will say that when I saw it, I sort of teetered from minute to minute between this is so ridiculous to this is so inspired. And I love the movie for that. You don't have that kind of just experience where you can't wrap your mind around whether this is working or whether it's not, whether it's too audacious or just audacious enough to be exciting. That's kind of characteristic of his work though. I think like his, and I think like, yeah, people say that this is a huge you know, so different than what has come before, but often his movies are like on this borderline between like, you know, it's obvious or, and like disturbing, you know? And I, th- I think about like, uh, yeah, the shout or like deep end, or, you know, these, it's, they're very, EO's kind of there too. It's somewhere between like a Disney movie and like a horror movie. There's a robot dog. There are green, like green lasers in the middle of a forest. There's Isabel Huppert in some Italian These are spoilers. castle. These are spoilers. <laughs> Trust me, this I, uh, you are not going to under, like. This is not giving anything away. The film will still be totally surprising. Uh, but I did want to ask other panelists if there was a film that you uh, were totally surprised by that. Well, we all talked about Saint Omer. I, I didn't know what to expect. I've since watched some of her documentaries. I, I think she's a fantastic filmmaker. That was the biggest surprise, yeah, because I wasn't familiar with her work, right. and it just, and also it began so uh, sort of elliptically, and then gradually it built and built and built, and you, and it asked you to to sort of reach out. It wasn't doing it for you somehow. Yeah. It was asking. It called on the audience to sort of fill in the blanks a little bit, which I loved. I thought that was great. Molly, I'm curious. I know you watched both the Hong Sang Soo films, the novelist film and Walk yeah, Up. Yeah. And I, I'm curious about that because, you know, Hong Sang Soo is someone you kind of always know what to expect, but always are a little surprised. And I thought that Walk Up actually surprised me quite a bit. I didn't see that. You didn't? You said not the no, What did you think of the well, novelist film? I loved film? it, but um, it's sort of, it's, it's interesting. It's sort of, a, he's re- reached a kind of creative impasse. It's about actually being older. I mean, he's a director. That he uses, the, it's the same director who is in, um, when we look at the, what is it? When we look at this guy, the last, the one I just loved last year. I even wrote about it. Um, in Front of Your in Face? Front of, in Front of yeah. Your Face. Um, in Front of Your Face. It's the same directors in that, and the sister from that is the is a novelist in this. And first, it begins in a bookstore where this novelist has come, and, the, and these two women know the bookstore owner and the woman know each other. We never quite understand what their history has been. There's some history, not entirely positive, between them. The older woman is a novelist. The novelist has stopped writing. The bookstore owner has stopped writing. Then they run into the director, and he wonders if he should make films anymore. So you you feel that or should he 
I mean, the, it's a sort of work-life balance. Should I devote, devote more time to life? And the, the novelist is a wonderful character. And at one point, it, she has this great line where she says, I don't want to just take trivial things and make them seem important just to keep writing, mm-hmm. which is a kind of wonderful line. And also, it's very, you know, he's usually very, the camera is, his camera work is just sort of, um, there's nothing self-conscious or fancy about it. But all of a sudden, there's this zoom that goes down into this park, and it's just a stunning thing. And then you go into this park where they all meet, and these different relationships kind of unfold. Anyway, talk about the other one, because I didn't see that, the other Hong Sang suit. Uh, Walk Up? Yeah. Um, Walk Up is sort of like, uh, features the same actors. Yeah. Yeah. uh, And and the director, the same same director appears, and uh, the novelist in this film is a landlady. The whole film takes place in this uh, apartment building that this woman owns. She is a, um, an interior designer who's kind of like a famous interior designer, I guess. And uh, but she she has some old relationship, a kind of unexplained relationship with the director. You know, they were friends in college or something like that. And the director shows up with his young daughter, trying to get her kind of an internship with this interior designer. And then uh, there's a restaurant in the on the first floor of the of the building. I mean, it, you know, his, these films are so well, narratively complex that it's almost like what what happens here is like. Well, what is to me, interesting this is, about to me, this film yeah. to me is, um, you know, it is kind of my favorite genre of Hong film, which is the bifurcated Hong film. This is like trifurcated. I though. know, but it's <laughs> that's what you know, and it's like. My favorite Hong film the, is thing, right now, right wrong, wrong there. And you, what you think yeah. about in this one is like, well, you think that you're that it's bifurcated, and you think that he's restarting the narrative, but he's not. It's the same narrative. Yeah. So basically, and this walk up that this interior designer owns has three floors, and the film has three parts that each take place on one of the floors, and each of them is like it's uncertain if it's like an alternate timeline, like an alternate reality, or the film is jumping into the past or the future, or maybe it's a dream. So each or just becomes like an a layer of narrative. Or just like an imagined thing that this guy is, when he's smoking a cigarette out front. <laughs> I mean, it, and it's, a, it's like a powerfully sad movie, too. And quite Unlike autobiographical. Unlike the novelist film, which I think is, yeah, which is also, a novelist film is autobiographical, but is like more, has is sort of more Closer. optimistic, I think, about like the power of art to kind of yeah. uh, help this help these characters work through their. But yeah, the director surrogate and walk up talks about having to give up drinking and doesn't know how his films will be affected by that. Which actually Hong Sang Soo has had to give up drinking due to health issues, and has talked about like wondering what filmmaking will be like. So there's all these references to his own, um, I think, status as like an aging filmmaker but who's still quite prolific and uh but yeah i i love that it's like very structurally complex and also rigorous in a way that some of the more recent films have not been which i don't mean as a criticism i think they're like formally different and this is a return to one of you know like the right now wrong then style very um complex uh, variations of a, of a single theme in some kind of spatial or temporal way, and I really was surprised by it too. I would say. Um, did you guys have any? Not surprised Saint by anything. Saint Omer. <laughs> oh yeah, Saint Omer. Yeah. 
Hi. Uh, yeah, I was wanted to chime in with Walk Up too because uh, with with the novelist uh, films is more like it, like you said, especially uh, with with his with his you know more recent works that you, you kind of expect what, what you're gonna get, and with the Kim Min He part especially. And, and but with Walk Up, I was like feel had that kind of similarities coming in, the expectation coming in, but then only till the end when, 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 when that was revealed, you know, the car comebacks yeah. and all, I suddenly realized, wow, this is actually, you know, a really complex, intricate design. And I feel like I, 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 I must miss a lot of details and I really wanted to watch it again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, only two uh, questions. Did you saw Kasamungius film, R.E.M. or so? Kasamungius? Uh, the, the, the Romanian film, Romanian from oh, Romania. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this, and 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 the second, the bones and all uh, from Pinto. bones and all. I know this, that uh, Kelly is has some things to say about bones and all. <laughs> so maybe we'll start with that one. Yeah, um, my feelings about bones and all is very complicated. Um, I think it's just that I feel that the film is sort of. Um, it's kind of derivative of films that were really important to me when I was a teenager. And so I felt like intensely like Badlands, um, days of heaven. Um, uh, I'm missing the other one that it sort of evoked at the time, but, um, it's also just sort of like a marriage of my (laughs) favorite genres, which is, you know, like just like a sort of teenage love story, but also of horror. So it's kind of a Gothic romance, but it is kind of rhythmless. I do think that it's kind of meandering. I've such, to me, Luca Guadagnino is a very curious <laughs> director. Um, not not like actually curious, but in the way that he's like interesting, like unusual, because I can't quite put my finger on what it is he is often trying to do. He also has like a really, I think, ambivalent relationship with the way that he depicts queerness in his films. There's like you know, the way that um, there's the pan away shot and call me by your name. He did this series a couple of years ago called We Are Who We Are. And it's about the friendship between a trans teenage boy and a gay cisgendered teenage boy. And they kiss at the end, but it's a platonic kiss. It's not a sensual kiss. And their actual, you know, romantic sexual relationships are kind of lopsided and healthy. And then in this one, it sort of seems like it's gesturing at queerness, but I mean, ultimately, you know, it still reads at least as a romance between, as a straight romance. And um, then it has like a very (laughs) weird, you know, I think Mark Rylance is a great really phenomenal actor but I think he's very much miscast in this film and As what? he's he's kind of oh we should give a summary it's a, it's about a teenage girl who's a cannibal and her father abandons her on her 18th birthday so she just has to like figure it out and then she meets Timothy Chalamet who I think is a very good actor and he's pretty good in this but he's just kind of like you know eye candy the film is really held together I think by Taylor Russell who is fantastic she's a really really wonderful actress and I'm like very interested to see what she does next um but yeah I think it's just like I I really can't you know films are mysterious things and I feel like I the way that I feel about this film I haven't quite located yet or mapped it um i had like a it's very compelling like it's a very easy watch i well it's not an easy watch if you're like afraid of gore but i love gore and so (laughs) i i think it's like really compelling um 
but they're just like on a I just know logically like I shouldn't like this film and I have real issues with it but it just I feel happy about it <laughs> I feel happy watching these yeah, cannibals like... yeah okay <laughs> um, RMN I, I didn't see it well, I've seen it. We've talked about it. Uh, we talked about it quite in detail um, when we saw it at Cannes. I mean, I'll keep it brief, but I wasn't very taken with the film. Um, it's it is different from Krishan Manju's like recent films. Some of his recent films, like Graduation, for example, can feel very schematic in that you know they're of that like genre that's eastern european genre of like social re- realism where they're in investigating corruption or like the bureaucracy of this post soviet state and society uh and they can feel very narrow in their scope and this one is a little more unpredictable and it's interesting because there's a, almost a melodramatic component to it it's about this um guy who's returning from being a migrant worker in Germany, he comes back to his Romanian border town where there's people of, you know, um, who speak various languages or different ethnicities. There's also migrants. And he returns and he has kind of a fraught relationship with his wife who he kind of abandoned when he went abroad. And he has this affair with this woman who runs a factory where they bring in some Sri Lankan migrant workers. And the town like explodes in an uproar against the presence of these migrant workers. And there's this town hall scene, which I think a lot of people have talked about in the film, where uh, the town gets together to argue about whether these migrant workers should be allowed to work there. And it really kind of captures, in a nutshell, I think, a lot of discussions going on in Europe right now with respect to the EU, with respect to immigration, how people sort of feel like capitalism um, has, and, and unemployment have uh, has contributed to people sort of becoming xenophobic, you know, these these various things. Um, so in, I wasn't taken with some of these like social critique aspects of the film because they harken back to his the schematic nature of his previous work where everything feels like it's making a point, you know, all these, this discussion that takes place in a town hall, there's every character is representing a different point of view in a very neat way that I find didactic. But there are these melodramatic aspects of this man, his wife, the woman he's having an affair with, and that that go in some mysterious directions, especially... Have you seen the film? So you know what I'm talking about. Like, towards the end, it goes into a very mysterious place that, for me, does redeem some of the schematic aspects. I mean, there's an almost supernatural kind of... or there's a, It's a mix of, like, crime thriller and, like, supernatural elements at the end that felt like... Krishan's work can feel so tight and it felt like a breath of something, you know, fresh air because it just felt like an ellipsis that you can't figure out. So that's my take on the film. Yeah. I was just wondering if um, anyone saw Beirut, The Encounter. It was in the restoration. um, I don't think we've seen that. We had wanted to, but no. Yeah. But did you see it? Did you have something to say about it? I, I had a lot of feelings, but I, I just felt like maybe someone who's like better at it could <laughs> could just like Beirut say, an like encounter. say it Beirut the encounter. the encounter. It's in the revival section. But it was it was a really good film that has to do with like grief and displacement and you know, memory and also love, but it just made us like really anxious. We were just like, this is like a panic attack. <laughs> 
I'm not going to say. But no, it was like a really cool film. I I just I just wanted to discuss it with people, but it's it's okay. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of things in the revivals section that I think we're, you know. It's just there's so much in this festival that we, we're right. going to be catching up for another month. We didn't even get to talk about Pacifiction, which I think is maybe my favorite movie of the, yeah, of the festival. Is. So speaking of surprises, um, I do think we're out of time, yeah. unfortunately. Thank you, every, everybody, for coming, yeah. and thank you to our brilliant panelists. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.